Our, our text this morning comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Uh, you'll find this on page 984 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, music team. We're on part three of a five-part series within a series on identity in Christ. Last week, we handled the difficult topic of sin and how our identity in Christ informs our attack of sin in our life. Today we look at the other side of that same coin. Let me pray for us and we'll look at the text together. Father in heaven, thank you this morning for the opportunity to worship together, to sing songs, to pray, to pray for each other, to pray for other churches, to pray for those who don't know you yet. Thank you for the opportunity this morning to participate in the Lord's Supper together. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity together to hear your word. And I pray this morning as the mouthpiece of the scripture this morning that you would cause me to not be a distraction Lord, may your word speak to the hearts of our people by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned, we're in this mini-series on identity in Christ. We saw in our first sermon uh, in this uh, particular chapter of Colossians that our past, the work of Christ, our future, the promise of Christ, these two things are the foundation, the basis of our identity. So as we live in the present, we live as if Christ has died and as if he's returning. That's our identity. Last week, we had the fun, fun time, right? We had a good time talking about how we are called as God's people to put our sin to death, to assassinate our sinful attitudes and actions. And how do we do that? What is the basis for doing that? It's our identity in Christ, what Jesus has done, his, his coming in the future. We live presently now getting rid of our sin, fighting against it. And we saw at the end of the passage last week, this is really about our collective identity. This is a team effort. We are, Christ is all in all. And so that uh, idea, that collective identity, spreads into today's passage. And as we take on this identity... 
as we take on this identity in Christ that we have been given, what results is a deep-seated unity. And that unity comes from love received and given with one another, received from Christ, given to each other, and pursuing holiness. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, again, we know that this is a continuation of this talk on identity because the basis for these next few verses is put in our identity in Christ. Look at the middle of verse 12. Paul's going to give a command. We'll look at it in a second. This put on then. But what is the, the reason to do this as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved? That's the reason we would do what he's about to tell us to do. This these words, chosen ones, means the choicest of the lot. Now, we are not choicest by our own doing. We are choicest by choice, God's choice, okay? A lot of use of the word choice there, I apologize. But we've been chosen by God. We are special to him because he's chosen us. We've been given a particular purpose. We are the chosen ones of God. And these next two words are really special. They define us, and they're very special. We have holy, which means ritualistically pure, and we have beloved, which means that we are the, the recipients of a deep affection and loyalty from God. Now, these are special words because these two words are used over and over in the Gospels of Jesus himself. Of Jesus himself. And so unity is more than just transactional. As we are with each other, as we are pursuing these things, it's more than tr just transactional. Like, yes, we are unified technically. No, it is relational. It's actual. Because we're in Christ, and because we're in Christ, it has this deep meaning of who we are. It's our identity. And so, as a body, what we're going to see today, because of our collective identity as a body, we are becoming who we already are. It's a team effort. We're in this together. And as we become who we already are, we are to kill our sin and we are to do this other thing, put on then. And so last week we talked about the, the violence of the word put to death. It, it's a tumultuous word. It's violent. And it is a call to aggressively do away with the attitudes and the actions of our sinful flesh. Today's word is much more calm. <laughs> Put on then has to do with a deliberate process of getting dressed, getting dressed. And so where we have the kind of violent putting off of sin, this is more of a piece by piece personal participation in putting on, if you will, the clothes of Christ, the characteristics of Christ. These clothes are a gift and it is our, our duty, our call as Christians, as chosen ones, holy and beloved to participate patiently, slow and steady, in the putting on of these garments. The only, or not the only, one of the best illustrations of this are the priest of the Old Testament. The priest of the Old Testament. You may not be aware of this. These were, you may, you're definitely aware of this first part. Uh, these were unworthy guys. They weren't special. They were simply the tribe of Levi, okay? So they were chosen simply because they're part of a certain lineage. And what were they given? They were given priestly garments. They were consecrated. So as they put on these garments that were gifted to them, that were a sign of God's worthiness, they were able to, to do the duties of being a priest. It had nothing to do with them personally, they were clothed in consecrated clothing. And so we, as the priesthood of believers, if you see the connection here, we are given the clothes of Christ. 
We're given the characteristics of Christ, and we are called to put them on on purpose, to participate in that. And so we collectively, as a church, we are joining in our identity together by actively putting on the characteristics of Christ. That's what we're being called to do. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, what? There's five graces listed in verse 12, five things that we are given to put on. There's a uh, sixth one we'll talk about here in a moment, but let's look at these five graces. Much like the sins we looked at last week, which were eroding relationships, Remember that? It was about attitudes towards others and how we talk to and about others. All these things, how we treat others. These five graces are all relational. They have to do with our relationships within the church. Let's look at them rather quickly. Some of them might be self-explanatory, but we're going to give a definition for each. Compassionate hearts. Put on then a compassionate heart. This is awareness of suffering of others, awareness of the suffering of others, and a caring response. This is not so much, oh, I see your pain. Well, (laughs) time to move on. No, this is seeing it and responding to it and in it. The word kindness has to do with warm-hearted generosity, sympathy, and gentleness as we deal with others. I love the definition of humility Humility actually has two boundaries, an upper and a lower boundary. And so humility, the technical definition, is appropriately evaluating ourselves. Appropriately evaluating ourselves. Now, this means that since we are sinful creatures amongst sinful creatures who are loved by God, there's an upper threshold and a a lower threshold. If we think too much of ourselves, that's called pride. That's not humility, but there's this other side too. If we think too lowly of ourselves, that's humiliation. That's not humility. Humility is the appropriate evaluation of ourselves. It's a gospel-centered evaluation of ourselves. What has God done for us? Who does he say we are? How much does he love us? What is that? We are beloved and holy. We are chosen ones. That allows us to be humble. Moving to the next word, meekness, sometimes the world uses meekness synonymous with weakness. This word actually means to be courteous and considerate, courteous and considerate. And lastly, we have patience, enduring hardship and unhappiness. So here we have these things, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. These are the things, these are characteristics of Jesus Christ himself. And as we do away and kill our sin, we're called to put these characteristics on slowly but surely, participate in clothing ourselves in the characteristics of Christ together. And so these virtues, if you look at them, they respond to the vices of last week. These five virtues wipe away the basis for the sins we talked about last week. If we know our sinfulness and we know the sinfulness of others, if we know our value and we know the value of others, we, this will erode the desire to take what we want and whatever we can get from other people. Treat others however we want. There's one final virtue. It's more of a binding virtue. It's an umbrella virtue. It it binds them all together. If you look at verse 14, 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If we were to take the time this morning, we're not going to, you can do this this afternoon if you'd like to, uh, write out what a perfect society or a perfect environment looks like, it will inevitably include the features, if not the very word, love. Love is the thing that binds things together in perfect harmony. And so as we, church, although we are not perfect, we'll get to that in a moment, although we are not perfect, the binder of the church ought to be love. Why? Because we are headed for a future that is perfect, and that perfect is harmonious, and it is bound together in love. The famous love passage from 1 Corinthians starts this way. I'm going to summarize it. You may speak in the tongues of angels. You may give everything you own away. You may have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am what? Nothing. Nothing. That's pretty serious. Love is that foundational. Love is that important. And so this love that we're talking about is our willful and joyful participation in the body of Christ. And it's not because of any old love, it's because of the love of Christ. We love each other because we have received love. That is what the love of the church is. And so this love that we have received from Christ that is set on us because of his death, this love that we share, what does it do? It binds us beautifully and peacefully together. A quick side note. Actually, I don't know how quick it is, but it's a side note. Um, there's a, a popular uh, discussion in the church these days about why so many churches are going badly at the leadership level. And the word narcissist gets thrown around a lot. I think that's really a thing. I think at the base level, though, churches that are falling apart in these ways, the base issue is that we have abandoned these virtues. We've abandoned these virtues as the main focus of who we are and what we're about. And when we abandon these virtues, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love above all, what happens? We see division in our churches. And so leaders of grace, members of grace, here is what this passage is calling to us, calling out to us in this, this area. Our main concern as a church is unity and love. That's our main concern. It's not programs. It's not the product of what we're trying to do. What is a church? A church is a people bound together by a love bigger than themselves called to exemplify that love to one another. That's what the church is about. And so what's our mission? Our mission is to go and make disciples and, and teach people how to live out the gospel in their real life. That's, that's our mission. Jesus gave us that mission. And how are we to conduct ourselves as we move forward in that mission? With compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's our call. And so our, our goal isn't programs. Our, our focus isn't this place. What a lovely building we have. But this is not our church. Our church is people sharing their brokenness together. That's the church. And as we share our brokenness, we inevitably will share the experience of the unconditional love of Christ pouring into our lives that we can share 
with one another. And as we share with one another in that love, we will grow together. That's what church is about. And so Christian, if you want to have a definition of the Christian life or the church life, what's it about? It's about killing sin and dressing in the characteristic of Christ. That's what we're set out to do. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, let's be honest. (laughs) That is a steep calling. Thinking about what we talked about last week, all those sins, that's, I'm going to fail that. You're going to fail that. Talking this week about all these virtues, we are going to fail that. People are hard to love. People are hard to love. And sometimes it's really nice just to get what you want. (laughs) At times, too, it's hard to see all of our sin at once. And so it's very easy to be like, well, I would never do that. Thank goodness. These are all attitudes that, that, that cause us, if you will, to fall flat on our face in failure as we are becoming like Christ, becoming who we are. And so as we live life and our fleshly urges and our natural desires are so potent, how do we deal with failure? How do we do, deal with the idea that we are failing this calling? And I love that Paul knows we will fail. <laughs> He knows, and he gives us a, what I call a gospel pressure relief valve. Because if we don't have that, guess what's going to happen? We either are going to be suffocated by guilt and shame. I can't, I can't, I can't. Or we're going to be propped up with false pride. Well, it looks like game over. I've arrived, right? And so verse 13 is a gospel pressure relief valve. And if you are a failure like I am in the call of Christ, we desperately need verse 13. Verse 13, bearing with one another. That means enduring with one another when things get hard. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Let's just handle this one piece at a time. Bearing with one another. This means enduring. This is a command to endure, endure the unpleasantness of sinners in the church. Week two of two, having fun together in the sermon. Paul is aware. Paul is aware that sin is here. He's aware of it. He's aware that sin brings hurt into the body. If you want to know about his experience of that, read 1 Corinthians. That church treated Paul horrifically. Paul's aware where disunity comes from. Disunity comes from our failure to kill sin and our failure to put on Christ. And so he calls us, knowing that this will happen, to purposefully endure the sins of others. Now there's a condition. There's a condition to endure it. So meaning there's something that has to happen for us to be released into enduring other people's sin and the hurt that we cause one another. What is that condition? You're going to love this. The condition is if there is a complaint. (laughs) The condition to endure has nothing to do with whether or not they've apologized, whether or not they're your friend, whether they're emotionally balanced or not. The condition of enduring is when things go badly. When they go badly, endure. And the basis for Paul having the, the, the gall to ask us to do this is this, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. This idea of forgiveness, 
The definition of forgiveness is graciously pardoning another on the account of goodwill. Well, I have no goodwill. (laughs) That person wronged me. Well, what goodwill can we have? The only goodwill that leads us to true forgiveness is the fact that we have failed Christ infinitely and he infinitely forgives us. Another definition, forgiveness is the release on the part of the offended party of any expectation that a debt will be repaid or that an offender will receive punishment for an offense. Listen, our understanding of the gospel can skew, our misunderstanding of the gospel can skew our idea of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't say something was wrong. It's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness isn't ignoring evil or sweeping it away like it never existed. Forgiveness includes choosing the justice and the protection of Jesus. Forgiveness includes giving yourself fully to the will of God. Forgiveness includes not letting yourself be sullied by pride or bitterness. It doesn't make things better. Forgiveness is understanding that Christ's compassion, his kindness, his humility, his meekness, and his patience, he's given all of that to you and we're called by his power to give that to others. As it says in Ephesians 4, the song I remembered as a kid was in the King James. So, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ. Oh, I forgot the words. Because for Christ's sake, God has forgiven you. Do, do, doobly do. That's in the Greek, okay? Um, Ephesians 4.32. The only way, church, the only way we could ever hope to aggressively move against the sin that exists in our life, it's there. The only way to take on the character of Christ is by embracing the whole gospel for ourselves, We are sinners, all of us sinners, and we are banded together by the love of another. And the only way, the only way we can find peace, the only way we can put away our sin, the only way we can put on the clothing of Christ, the only way we we can forgive when we face plant on this journey is to remember the way in which and the measure with which Jesus Christ forgives us. How does he forgive us? With his blood, he forgives us. To what measure does God, and and through Jesus Christ, forgive me? Eternally, without measure, Jesus Christ forgives all of our sin. There is peaceful relief in these ideas. It's hard when we feel as if we've been wronged. But there is peaceful relief in the idea that my sins have been forgiven. My sins have been forgiven. There's peaceful relief in being honest that in this body, Grace Presbyterian Church, we will have complaint, we'll have conflict. There's a relief in in not pretending like that's never going to happen. And there's relief in the call to love one another the way Christ has loved us. We don't have, we don't lack an example. We don't lack the power to do it. We have Christ and his spirit. And this idea of peace Paul wants to major on this idea. How do we know things are going the way they ought to? How do we know that we are finding that deep-seated unity that comes from putting away sin, putting to death sin, and putting on 
Christ, putting on those characteristics, and he gives us a way to know. Verse 15 gives us a referee to tell us what is right and what is wrong. That's what this word here means. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. The idea here is this, sin, we'll get to singing in a moment. Sin brings wrath, sin brings turmoil, sin brings division. The unification of Christians to Christ and Christians together in Christ brings peace. And so Paul, as we live our life as a church, what does he want? He wants peace, peace to be a deciding factor on how we deal with each other, how we forgive one another, how we deal with disagreement. Now, here's something I want to point out. Especially in the Presbyterian church, this idea of peace and purity gets thrown around a lot. And it can be used like a a big bat, okay, to beat people down. Here's what peace and purity is not about. It's not about agreement. It's not about agreement. We just saw that there is supposed to be peace even when there's disagreement. So what is peace and purity about? Peace and purity in the church is about the exhibition, even in disagreement, of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so, church, when we come to a moment of disagreement, may we all have the the spirit call us to pump the brakes and say, how are we handling it? It's not about right or wrong. The scripture we're going to see in a moment tells us what right or wrong is. We are called to exhibit and, and live our lives in a certain way. That's what we're called to do. So how do we know that we are doing this thing? We will have peace. We'll have kindness, compassion, humility, meekness. Patience with one another. This peace is only possible, this killing of sin, this putting on of the characteristics of Christ is only possible through a couple of things. And Paul, very quickly, applying to the whole of this passage, gives us four things. So it should be another 40 minutes. You'll be all right. We're going to get hungry. First, how do we arrive at this place of peace? First, we must dwell, make our lives the dwelling of Scripture. (laughs) Notice how we're not setting up house in Scripture. We're allowing the Scriptures to set up house in us. That's what this word means in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in you richly. Letting the Scripture set up a home in your life. You're going to fill your life with Scripture to the point that it's distinctive. Think about how when you go to someone's house and you see their decorations, by seeing their decorations or lack thereof, you can tell what they like and what they don't like. We are to decorate our lives with the Word of God. That's the the rate at which, the, the emphasis with which we are to look and apply the Word of God and bring the Word of God into our lives. We cannot do this without Scripture. And I love this because he, he expands on this. It's really a subpart of, of the first one, but it's, it's um, what do we do with the word? We don't just read it alone. We teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. We teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. This is discipleship. We are called not just to read our word and know it. We're called to do that together. Learn it together. Apply it together. Be together. 
couple passages in other places that get this idea across, Ephesians 4, but that is not the way you learned Christ, to put off the old self. Listen to the familiarity of this language. That's not the way you learned in Christ, to put off the old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors. For what? We are members with one another. We don't do this alone. We need to be in discipleship together. 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers. This is where we, we get at calling wrong things wrong and calling right things right. We let Scripture do this. And how are we supposed to conduct ourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, and meekness, and patience? It says this, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and guess what? Be patient with them all. This is a picture of discipleship. This is the context in which correction of sin takes place. So church, listen, first and foremost, we together, me, you, we must be willing to submit ourselves to the teaching and admonishment of each other, of each other. We don't do this alone. We must be willing to participate in not only the correction of others, that's pretty easy, but being corrected as well. And how are we supposed to do this? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. The first thing is dwelling in Scripture. Secondly, worshiping together. I think it's the definition of ironic that worship has become such a divisive, divisive topic in the church. It's supposed to be one of the things that unifies us in love. So it's one of the things that helps us to grow together in love. And so we have these, these words here. It says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The word psalms here is not capitalized. It simply means songs of praise. Hymns here, if you look at the Greek, interestingly enough, it means the Trinity hymnal. Exactly, only the Trinity hymnal. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. If you're a Presbyterian, you get that. Listen, that's not what that means. It means musical compositions that praise God. That's what it means. And guess what? It says here, spiritual songs. You can have music or not with spiritual songs. They're words sung together that praise God. That's the point. As we praise God together and singing, something happens. We are unified in love. We're unified in love. And I want to say this. If you're someone who's listening online and you've not been in a long time, or you're somebody who's here this morning even and you haven't been in a while, there is something you're missing out on by not being here. And it's not like what I'm wearing or anything. You can see that online. It's the unified blessing of being together. There's power in it. The third thing before we get there, let me do this. In the end of each one of these statements in verse 15 and verse 16 and verse 17, it says, be thankful. Three times. Be thankful. Be thankful that you have Christ. Be thankful that you have forgiveness, the example of Christ, the power of Christ. Be thankful for a clear purpose in your life. Be thankful for the opportunity of being together in worship, being discipled together, having scripture and studying it together. Be thankful to be in the house of the Lord together. But listen, church, when all else fails, verse 17, Paul really gave us a catch-all, okay? He gave us a catch-all. When all else fails, here is the rule of life. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God 
the Father through him. What this phrase means is everything you do, whether it's something you do, <laughs> do it, everything for God. In everything you do, there's nothing excluded from this. If what you are doing, if it's something you do, do it for Christ. That's what he's saying. If there's something that you do, and if it's considered doing, do it for Jesus. And this idea of in the name of Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus, it means for the reputation of Jesus. Displaying the character of Jesus. Now we get in the next two weeks more specific. We're going to look at the home. We're going to look at our vocations or as we interact with the world. But church, this, the idea here is this. As chosen ones, holy and beloved, we're called by the, our, our identity that we are given in Jesus to, to, to put away sin, kill our sin, to put on the clothes of Christ. And in everything we do, ask the question, how am I reflecting the reputation of Jesus? How am I taking on the character of Jesus in what I do? How am I exhibiting compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience? Church, we are chosen ones. What good news. We've been made holy by the work of Christ. We've been brought into a position where we are deeply loved and God is loyal to us. And we are called, as it says three times in this passage, to be thankful for that. And to be thankful for the unity that we have. And to be thankful for this clear call in our lives to rid ourselves of sin and to put on the character of Christ. And it's in that thankfulness this morning, in that unity this morning, in the identity that we are chosen and beloved and holy that we come to the Lord's table this morning. In the New Testament, in Matthew, there's a parable of the wedding feast. And just bear with me for a moment. In this parable... Jesus is describing the kingdom, and there's all these events where uh, he, the king in this parable sends out an invitation to his, his subjects, and they end up rejecting his, the invitation so, so uh, outright that they end up killing the messenger. And so what the king does is he goes out and he says, listen, collect anybody, anybody off the street and bring them in. And what happens is he brings these people in to the wedding, and because they are not people of means, the king provides them wedding clothes. He provides them wedding clothes. And so most of the people in the wedding are wearing the clothes, but there's this one guy. There's always one guy. He had one thing to do, put on the clothes. There's one guy who refused to wear what the king gave him. And he thought, well, this, this is fine. This is good. We're good. And the king comes to him and says, why aren't you wearing the clothes? And he has no answer. And in the, in the parable, they throw him out of the wedding. They, they tie him up and throw him out. It's pretty serious. I think... That is a, a, a great description, a great parable for what we're about to do this morning. Who should come? We've been invited, all of us have been invited to the party. We've all been invited to the party. Some people reject it outright. I don't want it. Others say, yeah, I'm interested, but I really don't want all this other stuff. I'm good enough on my own. God should accept me as I am. Others say, I don't have any worth on my own. I need Jesus Christ. I need Jesus Christ only. And so I'll take whatever he gives me. 
That last description is of those who should come and eat this morning. If you believe this morning that you have nothing, no characteristics on your own that would warrant any favor from God. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer but my sin. And in that way, you say, Jesus Christ, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your characteristics. I need your character. I need your reputation. I need everything from Jesus. And so in that way, if you have put on the clothes, knowing you're not worthy of it, knowing that God has invited you, you are, and you've been baptized, you've made that profession, you're invited to participate in the meal, the party this morning. For those of you who are here that say, no, you know what? Maybe you even believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but you think, "I, I got this. I've got this. I don't need someone else's clothes. I am good enough. The Bible says that that is not what, what is true. So this morning, if you do not need Jesus, if you do not need to put off your sin, if you do not need to take on the characteristics of Christ, the Bible says, in fact, with a warning, do not participate. And if you're either those folks who have rejected Christ or you're in that place, there's nothing any of us would love more than to speak with you, talk with you, ask questions, hear you out, hear your story, and talk more about that. But at this time, we'd ask that you do not participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. Let's take a moment and pray quietly. Let's evaluate where we're at before we participate together. I'll bring bring us back together with a prayer of blessing before we distribute the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, you are the God of our salvation. Whether we admit it or not, you are the delight of our hearts. The satisfaction of our souls. The only thing we need. You are the one Because you have chosen us, because you have warranted us as holy and beloved, you are the one who rejoices over us in love, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who you are and what you have done. So this morning I ask that you would cause us to rejoice in the Lord's Supper, that we would be bonded together in love, as a church by this supper, remind us, remind us of the forgiveness that you have given to us and how it came about, the broken body, the shed blood. Remind us of the work you have done for us, the life that you lived. Remind us of the power of the resurrection. Remind us of your ascension where you sit now at the right hand of God advocating for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us with your spirit whom you have sent, that we would put to death together, Lord, together in the unity of love, put to death our sins together, put on the characteristics of Christ together, that we would grow together in the gospel. That is my prayer for our church That is my prayer for this supper. 
And I pray these things, not of my own accord, but in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.